Good morning. Yes, children are dismissed to children. Dwayne, come back. <laughs> Dwayne's trying to get out as a child. That's good. It's good to see everybody here. It's good to be here, yeah. Merry Christmas. Isn't this a beautiful tree? Oh, man, good stuff. I'll tell you what, normally we would go to 1 John 1, 9 to kick everything off, but I'm going to ask you to go to Isaiah chapter 1. Who needs a Bible this morning? Who needs a Bible this morning in the back? There you go. Got Bibles, we got pens. Man, you guys cleaned out the Bibles. Oh, sorry. Did you? Here you go. Take this one. Yeah. Anybody else? All the large prints are gone. Which tells me that up front, hardly any of you know what I look like, and I'm okay with that. I did feel bad for you because you had to look at Tom, but not anymore. Right. Isaiah chapter 1. We're going to start in verse 10. It says, Hear the word of the Lord. And this is Isaiah cutting at the behavior of where the nation of Israel is right now in their relationship with their Creator. You rulers of Sodom, and give ear to the instruction of our God, you people of Gomorrah. And it's very interesting that Tom talked about the disenchantment with religion. Uh, we didn't plan this, but I thought it was uh, very fitting that the Lord had laid this on my heart to share this morning. What are, you, what are your multiplied sacrifices to me? And what is that, church? Works. But it's a question, right? What do we do with questions in the Bible? We answer them. And that's the idea here. When God says, what are your multiplied sacrifices to me? The answer expected is nothing. See, that's what's interesting about God. He's not so much concerned about what we're sacrificing for Him. That's why He's completely sacrificed for us. Look what it says. What are your multiplied sacrifices to me, says the Lord? I've had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed cattle. And I take no pleasure in the blood of bulls, lambs, or goats. When you come to appear before me, who requires of you this trampling of my courts? In other words, you might be bringing a lot of well-to-do quality offerings, but in doing so, because your heart's not right, you might as well be desecrating the holy place where you're standing. Verse 13, Bring your worthless offerings no more. Which is interesting because when you talk about the fat of fed cattle and you talk about burnt offerings of rams, if you know anything about the law, we're talking about some pretty high quality things. This isn't big lots here, okay? This is, uh, what is a good major store, ladies? Macy's! There you go. This is Macy's. And what is he saying? Macy's is the dollar store. That's what he's saying. Bring your worthless offerings no longer. Incense is an abomination. That word abomination means horrible. It's horrible to me. New moons, Sabbath, the calling of assemblies, special times when you're going to meet is the idea here. I cannot endure iniquity in the solemn solemn assembly. I hate iniquity. Your new moon festivals and your appointed feasts. 
They become a burden to me and I'm weary of bearing them. So when you spread out your hands in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. Now think about that. God says, because your heart's not in it, because you think that a checklist of religion is how you have an intimate relationship with me. Don't even bother praying. I will hide my eyes from you. Yes, even though you multiply prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are covered with blood. They're not worth bringing. That's a question we need to ask this morning. What do we have on our hearts that we're bringing to the Lord this morning that He doesn't even care to have in His presence? Well, I showed up to church. Well, He's glad for that. I guarantee you that. But God doesn't want the superficial mask of church life. What He wants is every person's heart. That's what He desires. And in order for Him to properly have that, we have to be humble. Now, here's what's great. He gives us the remedy. Look at verse 16. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Church, how do we do that? How do we wash ourselves and make ourselves clean? Confession of sin. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins, and He, not us, He will cleanse us from all unrighteousness. What do we do? We simply admit our wrong. What does He does? What, 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 what does He does? You can tell we're going back near Kentucky this week. What does He do? He cleanses us. We confess. He washes. That's the idea. Notice, wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. And notice it's not just confessing it, but here it is. Remove the evil of your deeds from my sight. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Reprove the ruthless. Defend the orphan and plead for the widow. Take action against what's wrong in your life. See what's wrong and seek to make it right. Don't just confess it to me and then go home and persist in the same sin. Lay it down and then remove it. So let's take a few moments of prayer. If we have anything, we need to silently confess to the Lord. Now is the time to do that. With our heads. Father God, we often try to keep up appearances and to mask sin or the shame or the hurt that we deal with. We pray, Father, for Your mercy to convince our hearts that the best possible place for us to be is open before You. For all that You are, for us to just get a glimpse of understanding of that, Lord. How it would change our minds. How it would convince us of the exceedingly evil nature of sin that seems so at home in us. And Lord, it doesn't have to be that way. We all fail, but the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ is greater than our sin. And for that, we thank You. We ask, Father, please bless our study today and may we be more convinced of the greatness of Jesus Christ. Who needs a pen this morning? Everybody have ink pen? Good. We read and we write here. Love it. How many people got one of these out in your yard? 
Jesus says the reason for the season, right? That's a good message. How about keep Christ in Christmas? Anybody got those? Nobody? Come on, you're all political folk. You surely got it out in your your yard. No one, really? What are some other good slogans you see about the importance of Jesus during the season? From the cradle to the cross. That's a good one. It's a little bit more encompassing. Wise men still seek Him. Is that good? Okay. There you go. That means women too, right? Wise women can still... Okay, just making sure. Hey, in this day and age, people take things way too far. Just making sure we know where we're at. Wise men seek Him, but the ladies can't do it. In fact, I walked in... Listen to this real quick. Tom said... Tom said... What was your joke? What do you say to a... This doesn't make any sense. What do you say to a woman with two black eyes? Nothing. You already told her. Nothing. You already told her twice. No, no, no. Here's now. Listen. This is why this is important. It's because when Tom came off here, he looked at me and very quietly said, "I'm in trouble, aren't I?" And I said, "No. I'm going to have mercy on you today." And I did. I didn't say anything about him that he didn't say for himself. So you have condemned yourself. Christmas messages are weird. I'll just be honest with you. There's a lot of pressure. Okay, we got to go to Luke 2. and Maybe we can pepper in some Matthew 1. And well, we got to go to Isaiah and talk about the prophecies and all these things. And I was talking with Pastor Steve and I said, I love the Word of God, but I'm kind of tired of the everybody show up and hear the same kind of message every time that you hear it. Every year, it's the same thing. He said, you know, I was thinking about doing something different. He said, have you thought about Hebrews chapter 1? And I said, I was thinking about that earlier in the week, but I don't know. And he says, well, it's okay for you to preach that. <laughs> and I said, you realize if this message falls flat, I'm directing everybody towards you. (laughs) And he smiled, and he said, I can take it. Let's turn over to Hebrews chapter 1. I appreciate messages like Jesus is the reason for the season. I appreciate that we need to keep Christ into Christmas. I know there's a certain level where Christians feel oppressed, maybe that our message is being covered up or we don't have a say-so at the table. And I'll be honest with you, we don't. This world has no place for Jesus. It doesn't. Nobody wants to know what He thinks. Nobody wants to know what He has to say. And somehow, if you bring it up, when you're just trying to offer an alternate opinion to the table, all of a sudden you've become... Narrow-minded. Even though it's not welcome. But I'm convinced that this isn't enough. And here's the reason why. When we think of Jesus at Christmas, what do we think about? What do we think about? Think about His birth. We think about what? Little baby in the cradle. Everybody likes a little baby in the cradle, don't they? 
we've covered it all with hay and we set him in there and for some reason the light's shining on him and everybody's bowed down around him and the halo yeah if you're super spiritual you got the halo in there right if you're a little american about it you gave jesus blue eyes for some reason we don't know where that came from but a child's cute right and very unassuming And that is only a small sliver of who Jesus Christ is. And I think one of the things that we could stand to have maybe around Christmas time is of course a consideration of His birth. But to understand that Jesus Christ is like a diamond. There are many glorious sides to Him that all encompass one whole. And as any fine piece of jewelry that anyone would spend time examining for its quality, each piece, each side, each point that reflects light needs to be examined and appreciated and cherished. I can't think of any passage in the Bible that does that better than Hebrews chapter 1. You read a lot of commentaries on there and they're like, there are seven things that the author points out about Jesus because seven is God's perfect number. I think I found about 40. And I'm going to share every one of them with you today. Now pastors, hey, here's the thing. No Sunday school. I see you guys know. You're sitting down and all of a sudden you started to feel the sweat come out of your pores. You're like, there's no Sunday school today. Nothing's stopping him. (laughs) But you're doubly in trouble because I'm not preaching next Sunday. So I got to get it all out today. And Megan still kept walking in. That's good. Surprised she didn't turn around and be like, well. I'm supposed to get through the entire chapter. We're probably going to cover four verses today. But, just so that we understand, let's read through from verses 1 through 14 and then let's back up and let's discuss it. Chapter 1, verse 1. God, after He spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in His Son, whom He appointed heir of all things, through whom also He made the world. And He is the radiance of His glory and the exact representation of His nature and upholds all things by the word of His power. When He had made purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the Majesty on high, having become as much better than the angels as he has inherited a more excellent name than they. For to which of the angels did he ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. And again, I will be a father to him, and he shall be a son to me. And when he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, And let all the angels of God worship him. And of the angels, he says, Who makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire? But of the Son, He says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. And the righteous scepter is the scepter of His kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated 
lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness above your companions. And you, Lord, in the beginning laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the works of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. And they all will become old like a garment, and like a mantle you will roll them up. Like a garment they will also be changed, but you are the same. And your years will not come to an end. But to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation? Let's start with the beginning, verse 1. God has spoken. God has something to say. And in former times, which we understand is the 39 books of the Old Testament, He sent prophets in order to expound upon His message to people. One of the greatest mistakes we make when we read the Old Testament is we love pointing fingers at other people. We too soon forget that the reason why a prophet of God was sent with the message of God is because the people of God had gotten off base. Because they were chasing after worldly things rather than being in alignment with the special calling to which they had been called. They were to serve a purpose. It wasn't just to be a prophet speaking to a people. It was to be a people that were manifesting God's goodness by keeping His precepts. They were to serve as evangels to the world. They were to be beacons of light. But instead, the darkness of this world overcame them. And when that light became diminished, not put out, Prophets were brought up in order to go and speak truth back into their midst. It was meant to bring revival. When Jesus Christ shows up on the scene, things hadn't gotten much better. In fact, the Jewish people had moved largely away from this idea of fostering intimacy with Yahweh and the significance of their sacrifices, the fact that you actually had to have something sacrificed so that you were very much shocked at what your sin was costing in front of your eyes. What this was to do was to generate in people a humility that was otherwise unfounded and a recognition of the constant need of God's mercy. These sacrifices were never a means of their acceptance with God, meaning to have relationship with Him. That was already established. And it's established one way and one way alone, by faith. But this was about having a sensitivity towards sin to where you would lay it down, you would deal with it, you would confess it, you would come to terms with it. And if we're familiar with Romans chapter 1, we know that there is everything in this world that tries to suppress and cover up things that are wrong. So God wanted to take a step further. 
This is what we find in verse 2. Notice he says, in these last days. You've heard me say this before. Are we in the last days? And when did that start? It started when Jesus Christ was born. The last days began when Jesus showed up on the scene. Why? Because in these last days, look what it says. He's spoken to us. How? In His Son. The person of Jesus Christ has something to say at a volume that a prophet could not accomplish. The very being of who He is, His very person, is something to be reckoned with. Every person has to deal with it. Jesus is not like Gandhi. Oh, he was a good guy and he had some moral teachings and he lived a holy, separated life and we just kind of leave him there. No, the Bible doesn't let you just stop there. What he's saying is, is that God has something to say to the world. And what he wanted to say was in the person of his son. So this is what he puts forward. Why is this important? Notice he doesn't say Jesus. Why do you think the author doesn't say Jesus? Why do they say Son? And His Son. We know that it's talking about Jesus. But notice that when you deal with a title like Son, it automatically implicates a necessary relationship to the Father. Does everybody see that? Now, if you're familiar with the Gospel of John, this isn't strange. I didn't come to do my will, but the will of the Father who sent me. I and the Father are one. It doesn't sound like Jesus was hiding his relationship to the Father. In fact, what's interesting is in a Jewish culture, it was odd to call Yahweh Elohim your Father. In fact, it only occurs one time, and that's because David called Yahweh Father. Only one time in the Old Testament. Yet, here comes Jesus, and that's all he's talking about, is the Father. I do nothing on my own, but only as the Father has sent me. I don't judge anything of my own. I judge as the Father has judged. What I see in here, I tell to you. What did he see in here? Everything that the Father wanted him to do. And why is that? Because Jesus was living an exemplary life of what it was to be completely submissive and obedient to the Father so that abundant life would be something that is a reality in the here and now. In other words, he is living a perfect fellowship experience with the Father. So the idea of son necessitates a connection in relationship. He's also inseparable. There is nothing that the Father is doing that the Son is not doing. Everything that the Son does is because the Father loves it, condones it, approves it, or commands it. How often do we see, just as He sent me, just as He sent me, sent, 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 sent. Does everybody pick up the sent? But do Okay, so make sure you guys are awake. Good. Everything that Jesus did was to demonstrate the goodness of the Father. Not only this, But if the title of Son is given as a means of how God wanted to speak in these last days, then what it's demonstrating is that Jesus is deity. 
Jesus Christ is God. See, this is why the world, for the most part, can handle the baby in the manger. Can handle the child on the hay. It's not threatening. It's not intimidating. It doesn't call them to task. We think of pacifiers and rattles and changing diapers and burping. and It's something that needs to be cared for because it is insufficient on its own. Everybody see that? But is that Jesus Christ? No. A lot of times it's what the world wants to see and believe about Jesus Christ. And sadly, it's all that in this prime season the church puts forward about Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is God. At least the Bible says that. From everything that He said, we have no reason to think any differently. How do we know that? Because His life was sinless. That's important. We'll come back to that. Notice in these last days, God has spoken to us in His Son. If He spoke to the prophets in order to call people back to truth, what do you think He was speaking in the person of His Son? Jesus Christ, if you're in hermeneutics class, you've learned this. We've talked about it over and over. Jesus Christ is the apex of everything that God wants to say to the world. The Old Testament prepares the way for Him. The New Testament explains everything that He was about. But He is the pinnacle of God's revelation. Everything that God wants to say to you and me, He says through the person of Jesus. Not only that, but we've got some good stuff. Notice that in these last days, talking about the present time, look what it says after that. Spoken to us in His Son, whom He appointed heir of all things. Where does that point? If the last days are present, where does the heir of all things point? Future. See, not only is Jesus everything that God wants to say in the present, if He is the heir of all things, He is, what is an heir? One who is going to inherit. And if God is the creator of the world, He is not a creation, He is the creator, has always been and always will be, currently is, maximum at all times, what this tells me is that if He is going to be the heir of what God has to give to Him, then Jesus Christ is going to rule. At a future time, He is going to rule. In fact, we're going to see it possibly in two places here. Talking about the right hand of the Father. It's mentioned 14 times in the New Testament about how Jesus Christ is on deck to step into a place of rulership in all things, all things. And I'm not a brilliant man, but I believe that A-L-L means everything. All things He will rule over. All things. Now, if you're here today and you have Jesus Christ as your Savior, that should be an extremely comforting verse. Because what does that tell you? The future is of no consequence. You don't have anything to worry about. There is no fear if you know who's running the show in the end. It's going to be His. It is guaranteed by the promise of God. And so far, God is batting a thousand. It's a good bet. If you're here today and you don't have Jesus, this is a situation you need to consider. 
Because someone who you don't have a relationship with now is going to most certainly and emphatically rule in the future. How do you deal with that? That's something to consider. Because they are in charge. Regardless of how we would like to run amok in life and think that we have no consequences to deal with, we'll worry about what happens later. This tells us otherwise. So notice, not only is the present of the last days when God is speaking to us through Christ, not only has He been set or appointed to be the heir in the age to come, the King of all things, but notice this, through whom also, through whom also, He made, everybody see the word world there? Bad translation. Ages. He made the ages. Not just the world. He very much did that. But He also, through Jesus Christ, God made the ages. Every age in which any person lives, Jesus Christ was an indispensable ingredient that had to be there. You know what this tells me? It tells me that Jesus Christ is also the Creator. What tense do we deal with when we talk about that? Come on, church. If you need coffee, we'll have Art Wilson down the middle aisle. What are we talking about? Past tense. So we've got a present understanding that God wants to talk to you and I through His Son. He's got something to say, and if He's God, whatever He has to say needs a response. He's also letting us know without a shadow of a doubt, my son will rule. It's prophesied in the Old Testament. I'm glad we have this verse, but technically we didn't need it because 2 Samuel already told us it's going to happen. I will establish his kingdom, and he will sit on the throne. He will rule forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. None. When He takes place to rule, it's over at that moment. Forget everything you learned in college about Greek mythology and pagan philosophies. There is no sea god that rises up and destroys the sky god, and when they scatter His guts all over the place, it becomes a new creation. Anybody read any of that literature lately? Good! Don't! It's a lie! Stay away from Enuma Elish. It's fables. That's why they call it mythology. Mythology is where we get our word junk from. I don't know. <laughs> Moving on. But notice he's also indispensable in the past. He's also creator. Through whom also he made the ages. For without Him was not anything made that was made. He had to be there. He had to be included. You could not make the cookies without the sugar. They had to be there. You can't get rid of Him. Whether you're dealing with the past, whether you're dealing with the present, whether you're dealing with the future, Jesus Christ does not go away. Well, I've put a bag over my head and I've just drawn a frowny face on it. That's how I'm going to deal. He's still in the bag. Well, I'm going to put my head in the sand like an ostrich and just not pay attention to what's going on. He made the sand. I'm just going to pack up everything, sell it all, and move to some place where nobody knows me. Can't escape him. He doesn't stop. 
Let's talk about why that's important. Verse 3. He is the radiance. He is the radiance of His glory. Now here's what's interesting about this. In the Greek, scholars have had difficulty discussing whether or not this should be radiance or reflection. And it is whether or not you take it in the active or the passive. What's interesting about this is both work. Both are possibilities. Both explain the same thing. Everything that God is, Jesus is. Everything that Jesus demonstrates is because it is a demonstration that comes from God. So whether we want to say it is the brightness of His glory, or it is a reflection of His glory, you still get the same part. What I think is interesting here is the word glory. Everybody see the word glory? It's the word doxa. If we were to transliterate that, it's D-O-X-A. And we usually think of glory as, I mean, I've, I've talked to you about this before, but glory is kind of like a, ah, kind of right, angels singing and light everywhere and cool stuff, right? We're into that. Star Wars type stuff. But, the first intention of the idea of the word doxa actually means for us to be coming to a judgment about something. It's about something that we formulate an opinion about. And because of the opinion or the judgment that we make, that opinion or judgment is like a trap door that gives way to praise and honor and causing us to want to sing and to lift our hands and say, thank you, thank you, thank you. That's the idea behind the Greek word doxa. Notice that it's something that has to be wrestled with in the mind that leads to the conclusion that it should of what Jesus Christ is worth. So when we talk about that He is the brightness of His glory, He's the reflection of of the opinion that you formulate when you look upon Him, and that opinion that you come up with is a judgment that is a conviction that lends itself over to cause you to fall through the floor, hopefully on your knees, and give Him all the praise. That's what it should do. Because the assessment of Him demands worship. How about the next one? And the exact representation... Of his nature. Let me say it this way. It is the minted impression or imprint. Think of, think of the quarter. Who we got on the quarter? Good, I'm glad you guys know that. Washington. Who's on the penny? Lincoln, good, we know it. Are they made of copper anymore? No, can't afford it. That's great. What's that? It's only worth a penny, that's true. It's true. Who's on the $1 bill? Come on, guys. We don't use cash anymore, do we? Too busy debiting it up, right? And then who's on the $5 bill? Jefferson's on the 5 Not George Jefferson. Right? You got it. And then Bill Clinton's on the 3 All right, so let's move on. You can have fun here. It's okay. The exact representation of his nature. The idea here, exact representation. Imprint. It's an imprint. 
as you would go through and you would mint a coin, you would stamp it so that it has a likeness. It's almost the same idea as reflection here. When you look at it, you see the exact representation of who it was supposed to emulate or mimic. Well, that's what it's talking about in Jesus' relationship to the Father. He is the exact representation. That word representation is the Greek word where we get English word character from. It is the characterization of his nature. And here's the interesting thing about the word nature. It means the real being. Or one scholar put it this way. What God is, the Son is. They share the same imprint of being. There is no separation. There is none of this, well, I'm spiritual and I believe in a God. No. Do not settle for that answer. You may be spiritual, but you're ignorant. And why is that? Because Jesus Christ Himself cannot be separated from the Father. If God is the Father, you can't take one and not get the other. It's impossible. They are so one that you could not properly receive the Father unless you received the Son. In fact, Jesus said the same thing, didn't He? I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one, no back door, no side door, nothing. No one comes to the Father except how? Through me. He is indispensable. So this modern New Age college campus argument of, well, I'm a spiritual person that believes in God or a God. You may be leaving a God, little g God. Those are also known as demons in the Bible. But if you are talking about the creator of all things, then there cannot be a proper embracing or accepting of him and then leave Jesus on the street corner. You can't do it. He is the exact character, impression, imprint, representation of the nature of God. He's the real thing. How about the next point here? And I'll be honest with you. I love Jesus. He is my best friend. This part of this verse freaks me out. And upholds. What tense is that? It's present tense. All right, everybody hold on to your boots. And upholds all things by the word of his power. Stop for a second. Think with me. You came to think today, right? So you thought you were just going to Christmas service. Nope. Can't leave your brain at home in the cookie jar. You got to bring it with you. Right now, presently speaking, when we talk about that in these last days, God has spoken to us through His Son, just because He has died and buried and resurrected and ascended doesn't mean that He stopped speaking. Because His speaking is right now what is holding everything together. It's not gravity, folks. It's not the cohesion of molecules, the proper formula. 
Jesus Christ by his word. And the word here is not logos like we understand in John 1. It's the word rhema. It means an outspoken utterance. It means to be verbalizing something. The very word of Jesus Christ holds our creation together. And it's not just any word. Notice it says his word of what? Power. The word is dunamis. It's where we much, much later, didn't mean this in the Greek, but much, much later decided that we would derive the word dynamite from it in the English. Because that's the idea of what that word captured back then. And so we bring it forward to get this. Because we like blowing stuff up, right? There you go. Yeah, who said that? (laughs) Awesome. I love it. You man after my own heart. Yes. Blow it up. Notice. God's Word, through Jesus Christ, is so explosive that it alone is what stands as the means of cohesion of all things that you see right now in the universe. Existence could not be sustained throughout the universe if God's Word were not present. We have a God who speaks. We have a God who speaks through His Son. What does this tell you? It tells you that not only is Jesus Christ what God wants to say to us, not only is He greater than the prophets, not only is He the heir and therefore future king of all things, not only is He the indispensable part of creation in the past, not only is He deity because He is God in the flesh, He is also the sustainer of all existence. Apart from Him, you and I couldn't function. And notice that he doesn't say, I just hold saved people together. All things, all things, by the word of his power. Notice that it all says, I just want to draw another attention to this. He upholds all things by the word of his power. The idea of upholding there, guys, means that he's omnipotent. It means that He is all-powerful. It means not only does He sustain it at the level that we need for proper existence in life, but He has the power to put it in that position and then to hold it in that position. If I did this for too long, eventually my arm's going to give out even though this is a small weight. Do you agree? You come back 20 hours later, what are you going to find? A bottle on the floor. Because I'm not going to be able to hold it. You know what? It's nothing for Christ. Not a big deal. Didn't harm it at all. His pecs weren't feeling it the next day. He didn't even flinch. But His Word holds it together. That freaks me out. How about this? When he had made purification for sins, if you've got the King James, it'll probably say the word purged. When he purged our sins. This Greek word is derived from, well, it's where we get the English word catharsis from. When he cleansed our sins. Now from what you know in the Old Testament, who cleanses sin back then? Who was charged with that responsibility? Who was it? The priest. So notice. 
not only is Jesus creator and omni, sorry, omnipotent and the sustainer, but he's also serving in a priestly fashion. See, there's all kinds of sides to this diamond. He's also a priest that has made purification for sins. And not only did he make purifications for sins, but in making the sacrifice, nothing else was going to be a sufficient sacrifice. And so he became the sacrifice. Every sin that every person has ever committed need to be paid for. All of it was running up a mound of debt before a holy God and deserved nothing but an existence of damnation. That's what it deserved. That's what my refusal to stop lying and my ears listening to the things that I should and my hands touching the things I have no business touching. My eyes seeing what I should not be seeing. The gossip that pours forth. The pride that bubbles over. All of it earned the damnation and separation from God. I would be getting what I deserve if things were left at the way they are. But when Jesus Christ comes to offer a sacrifice, and He doesn't have to do it every year, He does it once, and it better be a good one, because He's got to get us all covered. So why did He come in the flesh? Because the sacrifice is Himself. So you guys who like Harry Potter and you saw the end of it, that didn't originate with him. She got that from the Bible. Silly lady. That story is as old as God's plan of redemption. I think it's interesting how the world wants to be original and yet they copy the Christ. You can't help it. He is the only person that's ever given the sufficient means of acceptance where it really matters. So here he is, the priest, offering sacrifice for sins, himself being perfect, being the sacrifice for sins. How do we know that? Because the life that he lived was without stain. It qualified him for the death that he died. And why did he die that death? So that you could live the life that he lived. Because when he comes, he offers eternal life, new life, abundant life. If you are in Christ, you are a new creation, not a polished up creation. Not a thrift store creation. Not a St. Vinny's took it home and cleaned it with some wet wipes creation. You are a new, brand new creation. I don't know about you, but probably one of the greatest things people could use for this Christmas holiday season would be some newness in their life. Isn't that the reason why we buy ourselves so much junk? Got to have that new stuff. I don't know about you, but the thing we desperately need is a new life. And if we are believers in Jesus Christ, we need to know how to live it. Why is that important? Here's a reason why, guys. Jesus Christ doesn't want to live your life. He doesn't want to live my life. He knows my life, and He knows it's so pathetic He had to die for it. But what does He want me to do? He wants me to get out of the way so that He can live His abundant life through me and you. If you're a believer in Christ, that's what He calls you to. To yield, nobody uses that word anymore. To submit, to get out of the way, and to recognize His truth that holds all things together and is the best possible life we could live. What does that require of us? Humility. Confession. 
a newfound Holy Spirit-generated appreciation for the perfect sacrifice that is Jesus Christ. Now here's what I love about this. Not only is He the priest offering the sacrifice, not only is He the sacrifice Himself being a perfect sacrifice, but look what it says next. He sat down. He said, some, I know I'm going to ask this. You probably think it's me. Don't you just sometimes wish people would just sit down? I was thinking that as soon as Tom got up there. I had to get one in today. He sat down. When I go over here and sit down, you're going to assume that I'm done, right? It's the same for Jesus. There wasn't anything left to sacrifice. This sacrifice did the job. Ain't got to sacrifice anything else. And not only did it do the job, but here's the interesting thing about sitting down, is that when he sat down, there was no more sin to pay for. All was paid. Well, what about the sins I'm going to commit this coming week when I meet my family for Christmas? See, I know you. And you know me. So we're just going to have this understanding. All of our sins were future when He died. And He paid for all of them. Every bit. Every one. In fact, if one sin would have gotten out from under His atoning sacrifice, sin would be greater than our Savior. Impossible. In fact, isn't that one of the three avenues of which He is triumphant? He has conquered sin, the devil, and the grave? Yeah? Notice that. Why is that? Because He does it perfectly. Because when God puts His solution into action, it completely, sufficiently satisfies that need. Not only does he sit down, but he sits down at a special place. Where is that? The right hand of the Father. Is he ruling now? No, he's not. Look at your world. He is not ruling, but he will. How do you know that? He's the heir of all things. The future belongs to him. He has a kingdom that is not made with hands, that when it touches down on this earth, will never be toppled or conquered it will endure forever it's stability guys it's security in fact here's the interesting thing i can't think of a concept that is better for eternal security once you're saved you're always saved than the fact that jesus christ is sitting you see what i'm saying if you were kind of teeter-tottering between heaven and hell based on what kind of sins you committed then he needs to get up and do something because I'm not going to save myself. In fact, it was because usually I spent too long examining myself that put me in the state of thinking that I was no longer in His loving, gracious grasp. See, I don't need Satan. I'm bad enough on myself. But I'm thankful that the focus is never to be on me. It is always to be on what Christ has already completed. So when He sits down at the right hand, there's a lot there. How about this? Look at verse 4. Having become a much better, sorry, having become as much better than the angels. You ever notice there's a lot of talk going on about angels today? So all the papers here, let's go read our horoscope and find out what our week looks like. Connected to angels, isn't it? Fallen ones. 
demonic. Well, it's just my angels watching over me. Well, when that child died, they sprouted wings and became an angel. No, they didn't. Again, like the baby in the manger, these are the things that we conjure for ourselves to make us feel more comfortable about dealing with reality. The Bible doesn't allow for that type of stuff. People don't become angels. Angels are angels. Angels are very real. And here's what you know is, is Jesus Christ is better than all of them put together. Notice, He's better. Much better than the angels. As He has inherited a more excellent name than they. Now that's not the word Jesus. That's the title, Son. Watch what happens here. For to which of the angels did He ever say, You are My Son, today I have begotten you. Did He ever say that to an angel? No. In fact, when we deal with this idea of Son, we're not talking so much like a earthly situation, relational aspect. We are actually talking about a title that is upon Jesus Christ, eternally given, because He is the inheritor and heir of all things. When we talk about the idea of begotten here, We're not talking about the fact that He was somehow created. We're talking about His preeminent role in all things. He is the head of all things. All things will culminate in Him. Nothing will get past His sacrifice of the sin that He gave. And for people who don't accept that pardon, nothing will escape His judgment when He does so righteously and perfectly. You can't get away from Him. God never made this offer to the angels. He never brought them into this type of relationship. But notice it says, and again, He never says this to the angels. I will be a father to Him, and He will be a son to me. If you want to answer those questions, it is N-O-N-E. None. That offer was never made to angels. Verse 6, And when He again brings the firstborn into the world, this isn't talking about the incarnation, this is talking about the second coming of Christ. When He again brings Him into the world, was firstborn there? It is the title of preeminence. It is not that He's created. It is as firstborn sons, a concept throughout the Old Testament, have special privileges, have double inheritance, have exclusive rights in the family. All of those rights are given to Him. And notice what it says here. When He brings the firstborn into the world, He says, and let all the angels of God worship Him. Now, if you're in hermeneutics class, I'll go ahead and promote it till the cows come home, even though we're halfway through it. You would notice this is an Old Testament quotation, and you would go and you would look it up. And you would find in Psalm 97 that it doesn't use the word angel, It uses the word little g, gods. You know what that tells me? It tells me that regardless if they're a compliant angel or if they are a fallen angel, they will have no choice in all of eternity but to worship Him. doesn't matter what side they're on. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess. There's no getting away. There's no hiding. Rebellion comes to an end. And He will rule all and He will be praised by all. Notice what He says here. Let all the angels of God worship Him. Verse 7. And of the angels He says, Who makes His angels winds? And His ministers a flame of fire. And all God's people said, What in the world does that mean? If you compare this to the rest of the context, it's talking about are angels powerful? Yes, they are. Do they also change? Yes, they do. 
And what you find is this is being a contrast that is given between the changeable, even though powerful, changeable nature of angels and the unchangeable Son. Watch what happens here. Let me show it to you. Verse 8, but of the Son, He says, Your throne, O what? God, deity. He's talking to the Son, calling Him God. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. It doesn't quit. And the righteous scepter is the scepter of His kingdom, His ruling, His justice, His authority. All righteousness. Notice it says here, You have loved righteousness. That word in the Greek means straightness. You have loved with the paths that are straight. Look what it says after that. And hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, Son, yes? Yes? Everybody follow me? Comma, your God, who's that? Father, notice that, has anointed you, the idea of the Christos, the Messiah, with the oil of gladness, now watch this, above your companions. Now a lot of people would read this, get nerdy with me here for just a second, okay? A lot of people would read this and they say, well, obviously, because he's talking about how Jesus is greater than angels, what they're talking about here is the fact that he has been anointed with this oil of gladness that is greater than that given to angels. Folks, angels are not anointed in the Bible. They are not given an anointing. In fact, this word here, companions, is also translated fellows, if you've got the King James, partakers or partners. It is the Greek word metakos, which is the idea of metakoi, his fellow heirs, his partners. And every time that it's used in the book of Hebrews, chapter 3, 1, chapter 3, verse 14. In fact, humor me for a second. Look over at 314. 314. Let's do 313 so we get a running start. You know this one. But encourage one another day after day as long as it's still called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Why? For, there's your causal conjunction, we have become partakers, metakoi, there it is, partakers of Christ, stop, there's a contingency, if, if, we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. If, you hold fast your assurance that you had at the beginning firm until the end. What in the world does that mean? Go back to chapter 1. Therefore, God, the Son, your God, the Father, has anointed you with the oil of gladness above your companions. The profound thing about the coming rule of Jesus Christ when all full rights are given to Him as the designated Son, who is the heir of all things, and the indispensable one of creation, who is the priest, who also offers the sacrifice, and therefore is the Savior, and sets down because the process is completed, it is finished, it is done, does not want to hoard His kingdom and rulership. He's not threatened that He has to have complete control. Instead, He administers out to his metakoi, his partners, his partakers, his brothers and sisters who held fast until the end. Why? Because he desires for you and I to reign alongside him. He is anointed with an oil of gladness that is greater 
than his companions, his partners. Who are his partners? You and I. If, if, we hold fast the insurance that we had at the beginning to the end. Being a partner is something that we're qualifying for. Notice verse 10, And you, Lord, in the beginning laid the foundation of the earth, eternal, the Creator. The heavens are the works of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. And they all will become like old like a garment. Anybody dust your furniture with an old shirt? That's the idea. Old socks? See, those are helpful because you can just put your hand in there and just, yeah. Pledge it down, wipe it up. Like an old garment becomes useful for that kind of work. That's what's going to happen. Like a mantle, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will also be changed. Here it is. But you are the same. This is the idea of immutability. God does not change. Now, husbands, look over at your wives. Wives, give a very concerning glance over to your husbands. Because I'm going to ask a great question that is going to enhance your holiday season. Has anything changed about your spouse? Who said that? Smart, but lying man. And the answer is only for the better. Right? Wipe the windows, brother. Pray. It's great. I can get an amen when we're talking about how good your spouse may look, but we talk about exalting Jesus Christ. I'm just kind of getting crickets. So come on, guys. I talk about the Packers next year. We might have a revival. I'm not for sure. Jesus Christ doesn't change. You don't have to worry about if He's going to waffle on an issue. You don't have to worry about if He's going to let you down. You don't have to worry about if He's going to disappoint you. You don't have to worry about if there's ever a time that you're not loved. You never have to be concerned with whether or not He is holding you fast in His righteous right hand. You don't ever have to worry about whether or not His Word is relevant. He doesn't change. And if He doesn't change, God doesn't change. Everything else that changes in this world, and we have access through the Son to the only unchangeable thing that has ever been and guess what he has to be unchanging because if he were changing there would be no stability in and of himself in order to be a creator of anything because he might change the way he does it does that make sense to everybody so his stability his unchangingness is the very thing of which we bank hope on because god loved the world and he gave his son and if you believe in him you won't perish but you have eternal life is that going to change no And is that not the beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ? It is planted on an unchanging message. Everybody see why this is important? So notice here, your years will not come to an end. You're eternal, always existing, never changing. Verse 13, but to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand? Any of the angels he ever given that privilege to? No. No, to sit at my right hand until, sit there until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Until a time 
when all opposition will be moved out of the way so that you can move from the right hand and ascend the throne as the rightful heir. Notice what he says about angels, verse 14. Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to render service? Notice that, it's in the present tense. Angels are presently active in rendering service to believers in Christ, notice this, who will inherit salvation the answer to that question is a big old y-e-s exclamation point because in doing so god is not only paying for everything and abundantly pouring out everything through jesus christ but supplying the church with ministers as angels in order to facilitate a successful run in this life so it gives way to maximum glory in the life to come I'm exhausted. Now here's a question I have. Let me take a drink. You have a God that has spoken and who has revealed Himself in abundance and has decided that He would place in front of you flesh and blood that would be a perfect representation of Himself. Something that is extremely tangible in order to come to the greatest possible engagement of our mental faculties with. And not only that, guaranteeing Him in the present, but also bounding up the future and the fact that He will serve in a reigning position and quelling all doubts about the past because He was an indispensable factor of creation. And not only that, but leading into a situation where everything that needs to be derived in opinion about and formulated that should naturally give way in our finite minds to a glory that is to be given to God because He is radiating or reflecting that brightness off of Him and then turning it around into a situation where He is a minted imprint of everything that God would have us to know, that He is everything that God is, is the same as in Jesus Christ. Thomas, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. That He wants to turn around from there and uphold all things by the word of His power and to make a complete purging that is sufficient for all of sins through His sacrifice, not just offering as a priest, but being the sacrifice for Himself, being done with it, setting down at a place of honor, the right hand of the Father, having exalted to a place that is better than the angels, and given a designation of Son that shows necessary, indispensable relationship here, who is completely immutable and unchanging, full of all stability, always has been, always will be, and always will in the future, present, past, here, now. How does someone who doesn't have Jesus Christ deal with life? See, here's the thing. Apart from belief in Jesus Christ, you have no assurance of the past. He created it, but if you don't believe who He is, that's not part of what your reality entails. And so you've had to formulate something in order to compensate for what you're missing. How do people make it if they don't have this unchanging stability, security, love, payment, satisfaction? How do they make it? And let me ask you this. If these are glimpses into who Jesus Christ is, 
Why would you want to live one moment walking apart from Him? What better is there? What else was there to hold fast to that demonstrated such profound, undeserved grace to you and me as undeserving people, infinitely so, than what Jesus Christ offers freely? Let all who will take of the water of life without cost, freely. What could we possibly grab in this life that usurps that? How have we been living lately? In step, in harmony with the Son of God because we've been holding His hand? Putting our feet in the footprints that He's left behind? Or have we wandered off in a strange place and, and He's just waiting for us to come back? I can't think of a greater place to be than with Jesus. Satan's tricky, man. He rises up the things of this world to think that they have more value than him. And yet in those situations, you have to pay for it. And you have to work for it. You have to scrape for it. You have to discipline yourself for it. You have to jump through all kinds of hoops in order for there to be some acceptance in settling for something less than the greatest that is freely offered because he did all the work for you. It makes no sense makes no sense when you're taking your reindeer cup by the reins by the by the horns what are those things antlers yeah i don't know catching deer whatever <laughs> and you're hanging out next to the eggnog bowl and you're tempted to want to drive cousin eddie out in the middle of nowhere and leave him for dead draw attention to the nativity Draw attention to that little hay basket where this plastic figurine is sitting. Bring up this one question. Did you ever think that Jesus Christ is so much more than just a child? Pray. Father, we thank You for Jesus. Very much so in the manger, but much more so on the cross. Much more so as our priest and our future King and our prophet, all that You would want to say to us now. The heir of all things. The exact imprint of who You are. The purifier for our sins. The perfect sacrifice. Better than prophets. Better than angels. Given a designation of son. Privileged position. He has full rights. And no one comes to the Father except through Him. Lord Jesus, convince our minds and hearts of this truth. May we become more enthralled and enamored with the great love that You've demonstrated through a Savior who lives a perfect life and dies an undeserved but perfect death so that eternity can be offered to us freely. God, You love like nothing in this world can. Thank You, Father, for taking it all and giving us everything. We are undeserving. And I pray that our hearts are grateful. We pray it in Jesus' name.